When someone mentions the Netherlands, what's the first thing that comes to mind? For me, it's their famous cheese, the cute cartoon character Miffy, turlips, and windmills. Of course, the Netherlands is more than these, right? To find out more about the differences and if I'm right about this, I talked to six Dutch professionals who found their second homes in the city, famous for its fusion of traditional Chinese and Western culture. They are celebrated experts in their fields and have special feelings about their relationship with both the Netherlands and Hong Kong. This is the first ever podcast series run by the Dutch Consulate of Hong Kong. Going Dutch in Hong Kong, a special view of Hong Kong through Dutch lens. I'm your host, Shermeng Lee. We have an eye-opening conversation with lots of laughter with our first guest, Joost Schokenbrock. Joost is the director of Hong Kong's Maritime Museum and also an internationally renowned scholar and professor in maritime history. Joost came to Hong Kong in 2021 to take the helm of the city's Maritime Museum at Central Pier 8, after leading Canada's Vancouver Maritime Museum and the National Maritime Museum in Amsterdam. Joost told me he didn't have the best impression of Hong Kong at first, but eventually changed his mind. Let's find out why. So I know that you came to Hong Kong in 2021, right? So um, it wasn't the first time you came to Hong Kong. Can you tell us what was your first impression of Hong Kong and if that changed afterwards? This might be in a kind of a peculiar story. Uh, I've, I've been to Hong Kong before in 2009, I believe, when I was a Smithsonian lecturer on board a cruise ship mm-hmm. with uh, fellows of the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, we had this fantastic trip going to uh, Shanghai and uh, to Manila and other places. And Hong Kong was part of the, uh, of the trip as well as a stopover. And uh, We arrived in Hong Kong and uh, it was pouring rain, absolutely dreadful weather. Um, and I think the area where the ship was moored was pretty dreadful as well, if I may say this aloud. <laughs> so it was a bad combination of uh, elements that uh, led to my first impression of Hong Kong. I used to play with toys made in Hong Kong. Uh, so it always had this strange sound to, you know, to, to, to me when it comes to Hong Kong. What, 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 what's that place about? It sounds very exotic. And once I got to Hong Kong, it was pouring rain and I had my mission there. It was a bit of a disappointment. But my wife, she had been to Hong Kong uh, a few years later and she was raving about Hong Kong and she was raving about the beautiful islands and the nice people and the great food and the beautiful temperature and all that as well. So I really looked at her and I asked her, you know, did we go to the same Hong Kong? Yes or no? I was really concerned about her story. So when the opportunity arose to uh, apply for the job mm. of um, a museum director at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum, she, maybe more than I, said, why don't you do it? 
Although there's a, there's a little twist to that story as well. We may come to that a little later. So when it comes to that first impression of a dreadful city, you know, and what am I doing here? Uh, that certainly has changed uh, quite drastically, I would say. Uh, now, 14 months into my job, uh, I feel that Hong Kong is a dynamic city. It's a city that has a lot to offer. It's a city with a beautiful scenery, not only in the city itself, but certainly close by. Of course, we all know you take a ferry and 20 minutes later, half an hour later, you're in a completely different world, mm. if, if you'd like to. So um, the, the city is appealing, but also I should say the people are very appealing. It's a welcoming city with hospitable people who, if you really can get their attention, who seem to be enthusiastic about the things that we're doing. And if I may say it this way, and it sounds like a generalization, but so far, uh, I, think, I think it has been confirmed by the people that I've met, um, people are willing to contribute to your success. So it's, it's for the betterment of, hopefully, the Hong Kong community, first and foremost. But it's, it's quite a wonderful and stimulating element for me as a museum director to, to run a place and have that kind of support. Mm, that sounds rewarding. I'm mm. glad you gave Hong Kong a second chance. Well, and vice versa, Hong Kong gave me a second chance as well, in a sense, right? So I should be very grateful to, uh, to the wonderful opportunity. Actually, I know that like Hong Kong uh, Maritime Museum actually convinced you to come. I'm glad yes. they did. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I remember vividly that in uh, October 2020, I got, I was, well, I returned home to to the Netherlands uh, from from Vancouver just to spend some some days with the family with my wife, um, and we discussed. Well, Joost, you have been now at home in Vancouver for over three years, close to three and a half years. Why don't we do it this way? Stay another year and a half, so be there for five years in total. Then come back to Europe, to the family, and we'll just see what, you know, comes our way. Mm -hmm. I said, darling, that sounds like a good plan. We'll do it this way, and we'll try to travel back and forth and continue to have that strange, but yet very firm and wonderful and loving relationship that we have. But before I got on board the plane, uh, my wife did the following thing. Um, just two or three days before I left the Netherlands again for Vancouver, I was approached by a friend of mine who works in the United States at the Maritime Museum. And he said, Joost, the chairman of the board of the Hong Kong Maritime Museum is looking for a new museum director. And I told him that you know so many people in the international global maritime museum field, mm -hmm. he should talk to you. And, and I, completely naive, thought, well, Dan, that's very kind of you to mention this. He thinks that I so, know so many people. Mm -hmm. And I told him, well, why don't, um, why don't they send a job description so I can start thinking about potential candidates for the job? And I asked my wife, darling, please print this out mm -hmm. so I can get a sense of it while being on the plane and can read the job description. So she did. And she got home later that day and she said, Joost, I read the job description. I said, well, what do you think? Well, they're looking for you. I said, no, 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 no. They're not looking for me, but they want to talk to me. They are looking for you, Joost. And of course, as always, uh, women are so much smarter in many different cases <laughs> than men ever will be. Certainly in my case, that's uh, 10 out of 10 times. That's, that's what's happening. So my wife was absolutely uh, correct right. in her yeah. assessment. 
So I got back home to Vancouver, got a telephone call from the um, chairman of the board, Mr. Richard Haxt. And he, five minutes into the conversation, he asked me, well, is it something for you? I said, no, thank you very much. I said, no. I said, no, I promised my wife to stay in Vancouver for another year and a half. So, no, thank you very much. It sounds like a great job and a wonderful city, but no, thank you. And after many different telephone conversations, eventually, he really managed to twist my arm. Uh, he's uh, even more resolute than, than I think that I am uh, when it comes to these kind of things, or persistent, or yeah. resilient, or whatever the, the word might be. How did he manage to convince you? Well... Mr. Hex continued to, to indicate uh, that it is a city with lots of opportunities. That's a city that's basically built on the weekend-do spirit and entrepreneurship and making the best of circumstances and situations. And um, by continuously focusing on the dynamics of the city, he made me realize um, that I, in Vancouver, and I, I still had a fantastic time there. I mean, it's a beautiful city. Uh, British Columbia is a beautiful province. I could have quite easily grown 80 or 90 or 100 years old in Vancouver. But there were days that already felt 100 years old because there was that, not that much happening, you see. Uh, and I think that's exactly the point that uh, Mr. Hex was making. You really can make it happen in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong makes it happen for you as well. And I thought, wow, that's that's quite an interesting challenge and a wonderful opportunity for me to spend, um, you know, a few more years here in, in this, this fantastic port city that as a young boy for me has sort of uh, evoked so many uh, images and maybe ideals as well. So here I am. So he did, he did a fantastic job in uh, in, in pursuing me to uh, to sign up for the contract. How was um, your f the first time stepping into um, Hong Kong Maritime Museum and mm. seeing the museum for yourself? Well, that's the that's the strange thing as well in this story. I wasn't familiar with the museum. Mm. I'd never been to the museum and I signed up for the museum director position, not being familiar with the collections or with yeah. the uh, gallery space or with the premise or with the, with the location. And I remember vividly the first day that I entered there, I thought, well, this is a fantastic spot. Mm. It's on Pier 8. It's right not only at the waterfront, it's above the waterfront as well. Exactly. It's a phenomenal location. It's a big space as well. It's close to 5,000 square meters in total. It's, um, it's an internationally oriented collection. And for me, having spent some time in various places in the world, and considering myself maybe more European than a Dutch guy, uh, that international aspect of the collection was a very interesting element and an appealing element for me personally as well. This article about you um, saying that your father actually brought you to a lot of museums in the past. Can you tell us a bit about him and how mm. he influenced you? I'm most grateful to him for many different things. And one of the things is indeed that uh, when my, my older brother and my uh, late younger sister and I, we were growing up, he, uh, he was the one who really brought us to museums and showed us the beauty of, of art. And he knew a lot about the artists' lives, 
Uh, he could uh, tell wonderful stories and anecdotes about the people that were the creators of all that wonderful stuff that we were admiring. He, he was quite a, quite a perfectionist. He was a plastic surgeon uh, uh, by profession. So he, he was used to work within the square millimeter and everything needed to be right. So he also um, made it a point of testing us occasionally and by asking us, you know, just look and try to come up with some stories yourself as well of what it is that you see. And when you like a, when you're a young child and you're asked to do these kind of things, you think, well, what's, what's going on here? In retrospect, I'm very grateful because I think looking at art and trying to come to a sort of a perception of what it is that you see or what it is that you think you see or what it is that you think might explain um, a history, historical phenomena or, you know, work of an artist or the life of an artist, if you'd like. I mean, that's, that's key, as far as I'm concerned, that's key of undergoing the pleasure of appreciating art. Um, you can read all about it, obviously, and, and people maybe should do this as well. But it's that first experience, that first confrontation, that first conversation, I guess, in a sense, a silent conversation mm -hmm. that you have with that particular piece of art, be it a fantastic painting or a tobacco box made out of silver or gold or something else, couldn't care less what the artifact might be. But there's this connection there. So, so uh, he certainly stimulated us to, um, to, to go to museums. Um, and I guess in a sense, you can say he stimulated me to, uh, after finishing my studies at Lady University, to pursue a museum career. Although that's another rather <laughs> peculiar story that I'm quite happy to share with you how I got into the museum field. Well, when I, when I was doing a military service, um, at the end of that, 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 that service, I was asked by the Ministry of Culture uh, and Education, uh, well, are you planning to go to university, yes or no? And I wasn't really, you know, some nerd who really wanted to continue to study. So I thought, well, you know, I, I'd rather maybe try to do something else and save kitty cats from trees, and <laughs> jump from, from helicopters and those kind of things. But then I thought, well, I've always loved English uh, as a language and I've always loved history. Mm -hmm. So why don't I sign up for history studies at Leiden University? But luckily at Leiden University, they also teach maritime history. So it's a sort of a subsection of mm -hmm. history. Um, and to me, that particular subsection had everything that I found, find and found interesting in history. There's a social component. It's about people. It's about people sailing, it's about people staying at home, taking care of the kids, it's about people working in ports and, and uh, loading and unloading ships, it's about people meeting other people, so there's an anthropological element there to it as well, because these people that you meet may be totally different uh, ethnic uh, background, a different linguistic background as well, so how do you communicate, how do you try to understand each other. There's economics, there's commodities and trade, there's, there's shipping and trade going back and forth. There is biology, uh, you know, plant seeds were taken back on the hulls of ships uh, from Asia, for instance, to, uh, to, uh, to Europe. Uh, so there are all these different disciplines. So I found 
marriage and mystery to be a very interesting topic to be to be pursued. At the end of my studies, I had the fortune, uh, good fortune, to become the assistant to the professor in maritime history. Yeah. And at one moment, I remember um, I was walking through the corridor next to his office, and he was having a telephone conversation with someone. He saw me passing by and said, "Are you busy?" And I, I, I think I had at that particular moment, I, I realized I better say yes. Because you never know what happens if I say no, right? I mean, you know, let's yeah. face it, us students, we were always busy, right? Yeah. Actually, I was quite busy. I was writing my, my master thesis at the time. And he said, Joost, well, it's all fine and then that you're busy, but why don't you drop everything? There's this lady at the National Archives in The Hague, mm -hmm. and she needs some assistance for her PhD research. So why don't you go over to The Hague and help her out? He asked me, because as you may have noticed in this podcast interview as well, I will never ever be able to shut up, you see. So I'd like to talk, although I also like to listen, don't get me wrong, but I like to talk, I like to meet people. And the professor knew that I knew the people who could help this lady out. Yeah. So I introduced her to them, and during lunch she said, Joost, what is it that you're going to do when you're grown up? In a sense, meaning, you know, once you finish your studies. And then she said, you know what? My husband is the director of a private whaling museum focusing on whales and whaling just south of Boston. Why don't you apply for an internship? Well, that sounds lovely. So I applied for the internship. I was hired by the director. I flew out to uh, Boston, Massachusetts on the 28th of May to start my internship of three months. And one week later, the museum director offered me two jobs. Wow. curator and librarian. I didn't expect this, obviously. Mm. I said yes. So before too long, I realized three months of internship became three years working at the Maritime Museum. Wow. An exciting adventure. Is, is that how uh, you, you started being interested in whaling, like Dutch whaling history? Yes. It's, it's, it might sound peculiar because, of course, when people start thinking about whaling, it's this mm. bloody, murderous, uh, a terrible activity and that's how we look at it nowadays with our 21st century eyes and i think we should look at it that way because there's no need whatsoever to hunt whales mm. uh, that is if you see a need as uh, a legitimization if you'd like of a particular activity mm. there was a need in the 17th century and the 18th century and the 19th century definitely for the various products that whales could give to a good 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 uh, could produce for for society or communities it sounds rather harsh but in that particular sense it's not particularly different from fisheries from cod fishery or from whatever it is that we do now salmon fishery yeah, or something i guess else. it's unfair to judge like people in the past right with like modern perspective you know? I, I couldn't agree more i think it's very important uh, that we continue to realize mm -hmm. that it's very easy in retrospect to condemn whatever actions people have committed in the past. But I think it might occasionally be very smart to think, well, what would I have done in these circumstances? Or what would I have done if I would have lived in those years or in, in that era or in that particular geographical entity or country or whatever? And there was a need for foodstuffs, for instance, and otherwise you would die. Um, so, um, but that, indeed, to return to your question, that's how, where I developed my keen interest in, uh, in whales. Yes, the animals, but also in whaling, in the, uh, in the hunt of, of whales. 
And that's um, one of the reasons why many years later I wrote my PhD thesis on uh, Dutch whaling in the 19th century. What fascinates you about this whaling history? What's something very surprising that you found during your research? I think it sort of boils down to my fascination for maritime history in general. Mm -hmm. That is, especially, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century uh, maritime history. What is it that floats people's boat, so to speak? What drives people to sign up for a voyage, for instance, for the Dutch East India Company, mm -hmm. sign up for a voyage of five years, a contract for five years, to join 300 people that you haven't met before, rough, rowdy bunch, coming from all kinds of different walks of life and different areas in Europe, to travel for 10 or 12 months from the Dutch Republic to uh, Sunda Straits and ja uh, Batavia or Jakarta, mm -hmm. um, overcoming all kinds of uh, dangerous situations, storms, uh, rocks, currents, what have you, pirates if you'd like. What floats their boat? Uh, and, and also in, in a sense of, uh, in, in the particular, also in the context of whaling and, and whales, what, what drives people to seek the confrontation between the mightiest, strongest animal that we know? There must be a, a need, there must be some sort of a, maybe even a sim symbolic element to all of this as well. Um, so, it's the various dimensions of the contact between seafarers, people, mm -hmm. and their natural environment that interests me. As an historian, I, I feel that oftentimes fellow historians do have a keen eye for the successes in history, for the successful people, for the leaders, for the successful businesses, for whatever it is that really could be used to, in a sense, to, to glorify a particular nation or a particular country or a particular person. <laughs> One of the things that I realized when I uh, wrote my dissertation is that I worked on a topic that basically had failure written all over it uh, in, in capital letters. <laughs> uh, Dutch whaling in the 19th century was absolutely not successful, which is peculiar and strange and to me I occasionally have a keen interest for the uh, for the underdog you see so I'm, I'm, I felt okay with that particular situation but it was strange to work on something that eventually I realized wasn't successful at all but then the interesting thing is there were forces in the Netherlands at the time to try to make whaling a successful business and by forces in the Netherlands I mean the king King William the first who, together with uh, the, the government, came with all kinds of subsidies. So in a sense, it was a subsidized fishery, if you'd like to call it a fishery. Mm -hmm. And these subsidies were so generous that eventually, and that's what I found out in my research, the less successful you are as a whaleman, the more subsidies you get. So, so there was hardly a point of really getting people to become entrepreneurs in that particular field. Mm -hmm. So, and that was an unexpected result of my research, you see. Mm -hmm. So I tried to uh, come with a, a lay of the land or lay of the sea, I guess, in this particular case, a lay of the sea by indicating what companies were involved, who were the people involved, what kind of money was involved, who invested uh, among others, King William himself as well in whaling, because mm -hmm. there was sort of a shareholding companies. And at the same time realizing, oh my God, this is a very generous system. And it took a liberal prime minister 
Mr. Thorbecke in 1855 to scratch his head first. Actually, he started scratching his head in 1850 already. <laughs> so when, when he lost all yeah. his hair after all the scratching in 1855, yeah. he realized we need to bring down this system. Mm. It's too costly for the few taxpayers that the Netherlands had because not everyone was you know, paying taxes. Mm. Um, it's too costly. It's a redundant uh, subsidy um, system. It doesn't create an incentive at all. So that was basically sort of the end of, uh, of Dutch whaling in the 1850s and 60s, with a few more initiatives a little later. So all in all, I was, was quite happy that I uh, sort of went through this roller coaster of, of peculiar uh, discovery, so to speak. in Amsterdam for 26 years soon after. So um, how was it like at the time? And how was um, working in the Netherlands? Firstly, it was quite a culture shock, although I returned to my home country mm -hmm. after three years in the United States. But in the United States, I worked in a very small, small museum with about seven or eight people in total. I came over to the National Maritime Museum in Amsterdam with uh, nowadays roughly 120 people, I believe, 120 FTE. At the time, maybe 50 or 60 FTE, so a much larger space. Uh, and I was used to, if I were to give a lecture, to get the chairs out, to take care of the coffee, to make sure that uh, you know people would have a, a good time, uh, set up the screen and all that as well. At the end of the day, or around midnight, I would wrap up everything and that's the end of it. And when I first started in Amsterdam for my, you know, to prepare for my presentations, I had five, six people assisting me, and I was planning to carry the chairs. And they said, "No, no, 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 that's our job." I said, "Well, I'm here, I can help." <laughs> no, 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 that's our job. Job, you are a curator. And then I realized, okay, so there's some sort of a hierarchical, hierarchical kind of system there. Mm -hmm. So. I, I don't really believe that much in hierarchy, but uh, you know, if, if people really want to stick to it because otherwise they feel that I'm stepping on their territory, mm, let's, let's stick to that. So that, to me, that was an interesting culture shock to realize that I sort of need to adjust a little bit to the new circumstances. Um, yes, I started there, I started out as curator of realia, which mm. is a Latin word for, it's actually it's a sort of a plural form for res, re. And resre means thing. So I was, a, I was a curator of things. But there were other curators as well. So if I really would sort of, tongue-in-cheek, would, would uh, pull their legs a little bit, I would say, everything that you have is part of my collection because you have things. Uh, but eventually, we, we changed the name into material culture that made it a little bit easier for people to understand. So there were paintings and uh, prints and photographs and material culture. The moment I started at the museum, I also realized um, that I wanted to do something extra next to the job per se. I wanted to get more involved in the internal organization, so to speak, of the museum. Mm -hmm. and that's why I signed up to, uh, to be the chairman of the, I guess, a commission to represent the employees of the, uh, of the National Maritime Museum in Amsterdam. And then I realized, okay, people in the Netherlands at that time certainly knew exactly very well what their rights uh, are and were and to what extent, what are the parameters, you know, we're supposed to work from that 
moment to that moment. We have a lunch break of uh, one hour and two minutes. We're supposed to get so many calories, you know, just kidding. But, you know, you sort of go through the various steps here. And I wasn't used to that at all, coming from the United States, where, you know, you, you, you just, just work six days a week mm-hmm. you have one week vacation per year you see those kind of things oh, wow. so it was quite a quite a change as well to really get back to my mother uh, home country and realize mm-hmm. I, I need to adjust a little bit here and now that i'm in hong kong i'm sort of experiencing what i'm experiencing so it's 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 wonderful to go through that roller coaster i guess in a sense and uh, and see the see the various uh, say perceptions or attitudes approaches uh, of uh, what the, how people perceive uh, labor and work, and um, and for those listeners who um, who uh, are still you know very much involved in reading Dutch literature or or uh, knowing about new publications, James Kennedy, who uh, actually is uh, the uh, uh, the dean of the um, University College in uh, in Utrecht. He wrote this beautiful book quite recently. He published this book on the history of labor in the Netherlands since 1945. You know, right after the war, it's it's really revitalization of the of the economy, building up the country again. You know, don't take your breaks. Work, work, work until That's you really almost hard. drop dead, right? And then, yeah. you know, you're replaced by someone else, and that person will work, work, work. Mm-hmm. And and nowadays, uh, people, and I think for for good reasons. Nowadays, people, according to James Kennedy, seem to be much more savvy and efficient and maybe smarter in how to go about their work and also find that balance between, you know, professional life and personal life. Um, and honestly, that's something that I occasionally struggle with, especially with the, with the family in Europe or in the Netherlands. about uh, what you want to achieve here in Hong Kong as well and can you tell us what was your vision at the time when you um, you know first uh, take the job? Um, the, the vision that I had for the museum basically was a fairly it might, might sound like a fairly modest or not extremely ambitious one mm-hmm. that is get all our ducks in a row uh, make sure that the museum is an, uh, an authority a trustworthy authority when it comes to maritime history and interpretation of sources. The exhibition that we organize should be trustworthy, should be able, people should be able to check what it is that we say because of the sources that we use. It should be informative and hopefully it should be inspirational for our audiences. Um, when, it, when it comes to the organization, um, I felt, and I will be very honest about this, I felt that when I first arrived and that could be part of the vision uh, as well, or my, my vision for the place. I realized um, for all kinds of reasons, mm. um, I think we can gain a bit when it comes to having the various departments communicate mm. with each other. And this is not particularly something that's linked to the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. It's something that you often see in the museum fields. You've got the education department, curatorial department, marketing, and hardly ever do the three or four or five really sit, ar- sit around the table to discuss, okay, let's have a holistic approach when it comes to this particular project. Mm. And communication 
is key in almost everything that we do, I believe, but certainly also when it comes to using uh, public money. We are a private public institution. We are a prime example of this partnership between how we started as a private museum and the public funding that we get from the government. Mm -hmm. So we, we better use the funds efficiently. And one of the re ways to do this is to communicate about how we're going to spend the money on what products and what, what offerings. We have made a, a fantastic headway when it comes to all of this. Mm. So honestly, uh, Germaine, it sounds arrogant, but I think we really can uh, be proud of what it is that we all, not just I, but what we all have been able to accomplish over the last 14 months. With a, a sound financial uh, situation, a very good financial condition that the museum is in, um, visibility that's increased, the offerings that are more diverse than ever before, elements like inclusion that really are on top of mind, uh, uh, not only with me, but also my staff when it comes to um, planning to develop exhibitions uh, where Braille will be included. That's amazing. I know that you guys are building this new discovery center, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that and um, uh, what, what you would uh, put in there? The center consists of three different elements. We are, as we speak, uh, literally, uh, we are constructing a 100 retractable seat theater on the top level, the top deck of the Hong Kong Maritime oh. Museum. And it's, oh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I'd love to, uh, to invite you and, and everyone who's listening here to come over to the museum. That will be a multi-purpose space, hence the retractable seats. So it will be a multi-purpose space, but uh, it could be used for conferences, it could be used for book launching, it could be used for workshops, it could be used for a cocktail party, yes, it could be used for a fundraising gala dinner, uh, if you'd like, because there's a big, big window overlooking Victoria Harbour. So if, if you don't know what to say to the people who are sitting next to you at the dinner table, you can still rave about the view. Nice. Uh, so that's very, very interesting uh, to, to have that opportunity also to show maritime movies or documentaries. Yes. And in particular, I would say documentaries that focus on ecology, on marine conservation. Mm -hmm. Because one of the major elements why we do the why marine, marine Discovery Center is we have the theater, we have an expansion of the gallery spaces close to the theater, mm -hmm. and we'll have a learning center the Blue Ocean Learning Center, Blue Ocean Gallery Space, Blue Ocean Theatre, to focus on educational programs mm -hmm. to enhance people's awareness of the biodiversity, of the, the biology, the marine biology, marine life in Hong Kong waters. Something I never knew, and you, you, you might, might be familiar with this, but Hong Kong waters, there, there are 6,000 marine species living in Hong Kong waters. Well, one might say, well, so, so what? What's 6,000 marine species? Well, it makes Hong Kong waters one of the richest, if not the richest uh, waters in the world. You know, in a fairly small space to have that diversity is something that we would love to bring to our audiences. Interesting. It, I, I think it's, it's absolutely interesting, as, yeah. as you say, because in a sense, what we are now doing is not just create physical space mm -hmm. and create a program, what it is that it enables the museum to uh, set course on a new adventure. Mm -hmm. 
next to history, makes sense, right? It's a maritime history museum. Next to history and art, we're going to focus on marine science before too long. Mm. And ideally try to find ways to fuse these three disciplines, um, which will be an, an interesting undertaking, but a wonderful intellectual exercise. And hopefully Definitely. we'll be able to come with great educational offerings that way as well. For primary schools, secondary schools, university students, mm -hmm. we work with universities in the preparation. We work with NGOs, blue and green NGOs. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You also talked about how you would play like uh, really interesting documentaries. Mm -hmm. So what are some like movies or documentaries about uh, maritime history that you would recommend for us or for our audience? You know, some of, some of the titles that come to mind and, and, and randomly, to be honest with you, because it could be that the movies that we show or the documentaries that we show mm -hmm. are not particularly pertaining to Hong Kong, mm -hmm. but pertain to maritime history or maritime endeavors or developments in general. Mm, and I, and I, yeah, broader, broader or global maybe even. And I feel I can do that because Hong Kong's maritime history is not only a local or a regional or mm. a national one, it's as global as you can get it. You know, Definitely. Uh, just, just going back to my youth, I was born in 1961. When I was three, four years old, I played with toys made in Hong Kong. Mm. 1964, that's 19 years, say 20 years after the Second World War, with a city depleted when it comes to population, mm. destroyed for a major part. Somehow, within a generation, people here in this city managed to ship manufactured goods from Hong Kong mm. to Europe and, and bring it to my you know, to my home, so to speak. So it's it's a very glow it's a very much a global history. Maritime history of is very much mm -hmm. a global history. So that's why I feel, for instance, uh, um, uh, Captain and uh, Master and Commander uh, with uh, Russell Crowe. I think it's a very good movie because the terminology, because of the mm -hmm. the technology, not only but also the accuracy of how ships are being, you know. Um, uh, sailed and, and how they are directed and, and the navigational elements of all of that as well. They, they are quite correct. But it could be the mutiny on the bounty as well, for instance, as a sort of a gripping um, story, of course, based on the true story, right? On, on a real story. Um, when it comes to documentaries, uh, I can see certainly see that, for instance, um, um, you know, the, uh, I think it's called Richard Edinburgh's uh, um, Planet or the life life on the planet. There's this series made by the BBC uh, some years ago. Where the name escapes me. You know, I can occasionally be the absent-minded professor, so it <laughs> escapes me. But I think I know what I'm talking about. Um, that's something that we could put on display. Mm. Um, National Geographic, of course, is is quite a, a natural uh, partner in all of this as mm, well um, when it comes to their documentaries. So it's not. Uh, only to provide a wonderful day out for families and, and let's go to the movies. But we also, next to that, or in conjunction with that, like to have our offerings relate to the mandates that we have, the history, art, the marine science, ecology, environmental elements that we want to, to, to educate people in as well. Mm. So if you have suggestions, I know that you like to read I'm sure you'll love to uh, to watch documentaries and movies as well. So if you have any suggestions, Charmaine, or your listeners may have suggestions, we'd love to. We'd love to hear from that.
Listeners, if you have any suggestions, leave a comment on the Facebook page of Dutch Consulate Hong Kong. I did watch a, a really good documentary about uh, pirates. Um, it's from Explained on Netflix, so going mm. a little bit of history of pirates, but I don't know if it's still like the maritime history that the exhibition will be about, but um, it's definitely, I feel like people romanticize a lot about pirates. And, yes. Yeah. It's a very interesting uh, point that you raise. I think uh, when it comes to, to pirates and piracy, I think most people still have this sort of romanticized idea, as you mentioned yourself as well, of an of a, of a, um, uh, uncontrolled bunch. You know, they just do whatever it is that they please. And we know from research that actually the uh, chain of command on board pirate ships, you know, was quite well defined. Hmm. There, there, there was law and order uh, amongst the exactly. That I was surprised bunch, to learn that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure the, the same accounts for the the pirates who, uh, uh, you know, really roamed the uh, the waters around Lantau Island and Lama Island as well, mm. up to quite recently, up to the 1930s and 40s. Uh, you know, going back many many centuries, obviously as well. Uh, actually, we do have a gallery in the museum, mm. particularly focusing. On piracy. Oh, I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It might be that you will debunk our gallery then, but that's all fine. You know, we we, we, we like things. we liked your yeah. critical uh, re, your critical remarks there as well and your input. <laughs> Honestly, Germaine, the the days of um, living in an ivory tower and run a museum or work at a university and just be very pleased about the research that you do, and you and yourself are so proud of yourself. Those days are gone. We are here for our audiences. So that's why I continue to stress, please come with your, um, with, with your perceptions, with your ideas, with your uh, critical remarks, hopefully positively critical remarks. And that's exactly why I'm so happy that we have this conversation and I can invite your listeners to come over as well. We can only grow and we can only get better by the critical mass, by the comments of the critical mass. Otherwise, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's very easy to, you know, close the door and think that you do the right thing. When I was like in primary school, there was a few days where I actually could uh, go to Maritime Museum. Mm. But of course, that was like many years ago. So I don't quite remember exactly what we've seen at the mm. time. But mm. that's why I need to refresh those memories by going again. It's an exciting time. And at the same time, as we speak, we are preparing for a major exhibition that starts late June. What is that going to be about? The title of the exhibition is Hong Kong's Maritime Miracle. Mm. The story of our city since 1945. Oh, interesting. So there's, there's miracle that might be interesting for people and mysterious and adventurous. <laughs> but there's also yeah. the our city. It's mm. not just a city, it's not just Hong Kong, mm. it's our city. And by using our city in the subtitle, I want to indicate to our, the dear people of Hong Kong that this is an exhibition, basically, hopefully they feel it that way, it's an exhibition about, about them, it's, it's about you. It's mm. about growing up in Hong Kong or experiencing Hong Kong since 1945. And in one sentence, the exhibition focuses on the contribution made by the maritime community mm. as a whole. That's not just the ship owner or the shipping company. It's the fisherman. It's the maritime lawyer. It's the crane driver in the port uh, here. It's whoever else you can think of. Mm. The contribution of the maritime community 
to the development of Hong Kong as a global maritime hub. And I, I don't want to spill the beans too much, but in that exhibition, we will focus on the miraculous activities, miraculous mindset as well of the people in Hong Kong who made it possible for Hong Kong to grow and, and, and reach that particular status of a global maritime hub next to a global financial hub, next to rapidly in the making, at least an Asia cultural hub, maybe a global Asia a cultural hub as well. I don't know, but certainly an Asia cultural hub. Also curious. So, do you know if there is any trade, or in sort of a few centuries ago between the Netherlands and Hong Kong, or you know uh, Guangdong? Yes, there definitely was. Mm -hmm. I have mentioned the Dutch East India Company established in 1602, mm -hmm. uh, around starting from the mid 17th century. Um, Dutch sailors, but actually also English and French and Danish and German and wherever they came from. You know, it was a melting pot of nations, basically, on board these ships. Mm -hmm. uh, they would come to Batavia. And who else came to Batavia to trade? People from China, uh, especially from the Fukien, the Fukien uh, region, mm -hmm. uh, to bring commodities. And it later, after a few decades, the Dutch East India Company realized, well, hang on, why wouldn't we go to China instead of having the Chinese come to Batavia? Mm -hmm. Because we may pay extra for, you know, their fare of bringing the commodities from China to Batavia. And the Dutch in those days being extremely thrifty. Nowadays, of course, we see ourselves as really very, very generous. But actually, the you know, thriftiness is still something that's oftentimes associated with Scots mm -hmm. and with Dutch. Although the Scots are much, much worse, of course. <laughs> but still, um, you know, the, the Dutch East India Company realized we better try to establish ourselves in China, mm. which wasn't really a very easy thing to do because the Chinese emperor didn't really want to have too many Guaylos coming to, <laughs> to Canton at the time, Guangzhou yeah. nowadays. Uh, although, of course, since 1557, the Portuguese had an establishment, had an office in Macau. Mm. So they were already well established, but in Canton, that basically started uh, the first decades of the 18th century. Mm. So the Dutch, together with the Swedes and the French and the English, and after 1784 with the Americans as well, they had various offices mm. uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Canton along the Pearl River. Um, and um, merchants were allowed to live there throughout the year or for the major part of the year. And when Dutch East India Company ships would get into the mouth of the Pearl River and pass Boca Tigris, mm. the island where the castle and the fortress and, and the guns uh, were positioned, uh, then uh, oftentimes they, uh, they needed to moor the ship of Wampoa the anchorage, you know, the, the, the raid of Wampoa, and then the captain, together with the most important mergers on board, were invited, uh, basically, I should say, maybe better, accompanied by um, officials on behalf of the government mm. to go to Guangzhou and do their business. Mm. 
the rest of the, the crew would remain in Wampoa and they would find other ways to occupy themselves. The interesting thing to me uh, is that when you, when you read that history and see the connections between the Netherlands and uh, China, especially Guangzhou, the emperor, in a sense, found a way, a, a modus operandi, by allowing the Westerners to start their offices, but keep them together in one particular area of the city, close to the Pearl River. Mm. Almost indicating once you have a problem, that is all these Westerners coming in, you better concentrate, you better isolate the problem of the rest of the, of the people mm. by putting them together so it's easier to keep control. And of course, the control was there via the Hong merchants as well. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a fascinating story about allowing trade and commerce, opening up the door, but at the same time, knowing that someone is safeguarding that door, that mm -hmm. nobody else comes in or nothing will escape from Guangzhou without <laughs> so the knowledge by the emperor. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and oftentimes it was brought to the Westerners like, well, this is for for your good sake that we put you together so you have your neighbors close by mm. so there's a wonderful argumentation almost you know something that uh, diplomats nowadays could uh, sort of use in their in their language as well i guess to do, to make a compliment it's for your sake and at the same time knowing that it's absolutely necessary for the safety of your own people you see can i know if you think um your dutch upbringing um influenced you in any way yes i well it, it may have influenced me to uh to be interested in water and how people use water either as um a sort of a you know means for transportation mm -hmm. or how to fight water you you might know germaine that about 70 percent of the netherlands is below sea level uh, it's, I think, one of the reasons, it's a variation to the giraffe, you know, that giraffes have long necks mm -hmm. because they needed to reach out to the leaves uh, that were getting higher and higher on the tree because the leaves, and the, you know, the, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, was gone. Yeah. Um, I think, I feel that the same with, with people in the Netherlands, as you may know, they are still the tallest people in the world. And I think that has to do with the geography of the country <laughs> because so much is below sea level. They yeah. need to grow taller and taller to see the water coming. Um, and our son is one of those representatives. And there are some other people that we know uh, who, who could uh, quite easily fit into the category as well. Yeah. Uh, but all sort of joking, joking aside, it's, mm. it, we, we in the Netherlands, I can quite easily state, we grow up with being fearful, being fearsome for water being respectful of water and oceans uh, because we know the danger. Uh, once the sea level rises, uh, we will notice, uh, definitely. So I think, in a sense, growing up in the Netherlands, uh, being a maritime nation, you know, still uh, lots of uh, seafaring companies and in the past, many people being employed as seafarers or as entrepreneurs in, in the maritime endeavors. It, uh, it certainly, um, I think, sort of is, is part of our DNA. And, and I grew up in Nijmegen, that's surrounded by two major rivers. So I guess in a sense, maybe that may have played some sort of a role in my, my ideas, my, my interest for, for history or maritime history as well.
are some cultural differences that you notice between uh, the Netherlands and Hong Kong? When I first arrived here, and I will be very frank about this, uh, you know, maybe as a sort of counter, as a counterpoint to uh, to all the uh, very positive things that I've said about the people so far. When I first arrived, people told me, you know, Hong Kong and Hong Kong people, there are three F's. It's mm-hmm. food, family, and finance or fortune. Um, you know, people are interested in food. That's correct, I believe. Oh, definitely. F- family is very much on people's uh, minds. You know, family first. It's this collectiveness, I think, in a sense, if that's a collectivity. Uh, correct. This collective spirit. It's it's mm-hmm. focusing on the collective on the collective efforts uh, mm-hmm. more maybe than individualism, uh, and and fortune. You know, being materialistic. Of course, I I can shy away from commenting on that last element, but living in a very expensive city, I I guess you have to be sort of materialistic, otherwise you can't survive, right? Uh, in in a very expensive city like Hong Kong. So when we focus on the first two things, food maybe it's my upbringing, but I, I, I you know f- food is something that you that you uh, take uh, and you eat because it keeps you alive. And it mm-hmm. sort of fuels the engine. Yeah. Um, I never was raised like as, as a foodie, so to speak. And when I went to Vancouver, which is a very foodie kind of city, mm-hmm. I was introduced to people who really made it almost an art of finding the best avocado in, <laughs> in you know, next next to the best nail nail studio, of course, right? Yeah, um, right. And, and don't confuse those two because you don't want to eat nails or have avocados being worked on this. You know, well, you catch my drift here. But nevertheless, you know, it's a very foodie city. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong, I believe, is similar. A very foodie city with great restaurants uh, on Cantonese food and Chinese food, but also Vietnamese and Italian. I mean, you can't go wrong anywhere. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's, in a sense, a difference, for me personally, a difference, cultural difference between the Netherlands and, and Hong Kong. When it comes to family, or maybe I should uh, stretch this a little bit and indicate when it comes to um, serving the collective and serving the individual, I might be I might might start saying something that might not uh, land too well with uh, with our uh, Eng- Dutch listeners, but I believe that in the Netherlands it's 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 more an individualistic kind of community oftentimes. Oftentimes, that, that's how it feels. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, apart, and that's quite a famous example, apart from, uh, except for when, when the Dutch national soccer team is playing, then, mm-hmm. you know, you got 17 million people, 17.5 million people standing, you know, alongside as one. But oftentimes, there's some sort of a strong individualistic kind of approach towards life, I believe. Uh, I don't want to sound too, too gloomy. There might be a wonderful element to that individualistic approach, but that certainly seemed to be a difference with uh, what I've experienced so far in Hong Kong. When I see people dealing with the families, well, respecting um, ancestors, people take the day off to take care of the graves of their ancestors. Mm. Well, we don't have such a thing in the Netherlands. And maybe by using that particular example, Mm -hmm. it tells me something about how families and also the deceased are being cherished and kept in the hearts of the people. And it goes from generation to generation to generation. So there's something something very lovely and moving uh, in that as well. 
So speaking of cultural differences, so when it comes to sort of learning new knowledge or you know going to exhibitions or museums, what do you think are the differences between Hong Kongers and、um, people in the Netherlands? I heard from from、uh, some some people close to the museum that when it comes to going to museums, that's sort of a novelty in Hong Kong. A novelty,、uh, sort of referring to maybe the,、um, something that's fairly new、uh, over the last say thirty, forty years, twenty-five years. As I understand it, going to museums, say the generation of my parents, say twenty-five years ago,、mm-hmm. here in Hong Kong, going to museums, either you couldn't do it, or when there were museums, people didn't go. So it's basically, or hardly go. So it's basically the the new generation, the next generation, my age and younger. Who are really developing this keen interest in museums, and I think when I look at at, at the situation in the Netherlands,、um, that might be quite different. I know that、um, a country of seventeen and a half million people, there are tens of millions of visits per year to museums, which suggests that people at least go once or twice a year to museums. And some people might go five or six times, as other people will never ever go. But it seems to be Very much,、uh, say, on the radar of people in the Netherlands.、Mm-hmm. I also must say,、uh, last counting that I did,、um, I think there were close to eight hundred and ninety museums in a small country、mm-hmm. like the Netherlands. When it comes to a big city like Hong Kong, there are not that many museums. There are not that many cultural institutions.、Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound too critical. That I'm sure is part of the tradition or part of history. What I would love to do is see if we can get、uh, sort of the cultural、uh, sector, cultural world in Hong Kong, be mobilized. I think there's a fantastic opportunity for Hong Kong to 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 grow, to get stronger in what it is that we can offer to our audiences and create a. Uh, more awareness and enhance awareness of the beauty of museums. Thanks a lot for telling us so many interesting stories about maritime history, Hong Kong, and the Netherlands. Hey, listeners, what do you think about Yo's story? Leave a comment on the Facebook page of Dutch Consulate Hong Kong. In the next episode, you will hear the tale of Candice Lee. Stay tuned for the next episode. This series is brought to you by the Dutch Consulate General in Hong Kong and produced by Hong Kong-based podcast production team Sustainable Asia. <laughs>